Reading from our passage today, Romans uh, 15, verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn. Church, you may be seated. <clears throat> if you haven't already, please meet me in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verses 30 through 33. We conclude another chapter uh, in the book of Romans today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to get to open up God's Word with you. Uh, today, Paul, uh, the writer of Romans, he's asking for prayer. And if you remember, uh, Paul has just explained to his Roman readers that he intends to come visit them for the very first time. He loves them, he knows them, but he's not yet been in their presence, he's not been with them. Uh, but first, he's going to deliver a financial gift to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. If you remember, Macedonia and Achaia, these two different regions, had uh, collected financial resources to give to Paul to distribute. And so last week, we considered the power of that gift, particularly that it broke down three barriers, if you remember. It broke down the barriers of consumerism, materialism, and individualism. Today, what Paul is doing is he's counting the cost of delivering that gift. So first we looked at the power of that gift and what it would accomplish, and now we're looking at the cost of Paul actually delivering, hand-delivering that gift himself. You see, we, we know this, right? When you break down barriers, not everybody is excited. Not everybody is excited about those barriers being broken down. There were people who found a level of comfort with the social and religious classes and divisions of the day, even within the Christian church, that they knew this gift would defy, would break down, would cause certain walls within society to fall. And so they didn't want these walls to fall down. Are you with me? That there was tension. And so Paul needed prayer. He needed to let his Romans uh, brothers and sisters know. And so Paul has good reason to be concerned. And instead of keeping his concern quiet, what's he do? He tells his brothers and sisters. He says, I'm anxious. I'm afraid. I'm struggling. I need you. I want you to enter into this with me. Isn't that what Christian church family is supposed to be all about? Isn't this what we desire as a church family? Isn't this what we need? We need to learn to cultivate not only with our own souls, but within our relationships, what it means to share our burdens with one another, to celebrate together, to weep together. So Paul even says here, as we'll see, we're supposed to strive together in prayer. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what it means to strive in prayer together, especially through struggle. And many of us do, in fact, struggle to pray. Even right now, you're like, dang it, this is a sermon I'd be happy to skip because this is not my thing. Prayer is not my gift. My mom told me many years ago it's not my spiritual gift, so I do other things, right? But we wrestle all the time, regardless of our relationship with prayer. We wrestle with prayer as an idea, don't we? Is this effective? Does it even matter? Isn't God going to do what God is going to do, whether or not I actually pray? So we battle trusting that prayer, especially praying with each other, especially, right, some of you out loud in group is like one of the most broken ideas in the entire church, that we should pray out loud when other people are present. 
does it even affect ultimate reality? See, after all, there are plenty of situations in which we have all prayed for something particular to happen, and it didn't. And what do we do with that? What do we do when prayer does not render the result that we believe God led us to even pray about? So what do we do with that? What's the purpose? What's the power of prayer? And what's the role of prayer in the local church, in the life of the church, in our understanding of who God is and who we are? Paul seems to think that it is pretty central. And so in the middle of his struggle, in the middle of his anxiety and his fear, he doesn't just say, I'm the great apostle, I'm praying for you, but you're not going to pray for me. He just says, hey, listen, I need your help, and here's what I need your help with. So here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the posture of prayer, we'll look at the content of prayer, and then finally we'll look at the result of prayer the posture, the content, and then the result. Let's ask for God's help. Father, uh, help us. Help us as we open up your word to understand what it means, what you are saying to us, and what it means to respond in obedience, in joy, in faith, and in love. I pray that as we open up your word that, that it would read us back, that it would reveal our need, our need to grow, our need for you, our need for repentance, uh, our need for hope and joy that is grounded in ultimate reality, our need to belong together and to be together, to be your children and to be brothers and sisters. So we thank you uh, that you promised to do all of that and more for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the first things I think we notice when we look uh, at Paul's prayer requests uh, here is that it's not passive. In fact, when we read it, it almost feels like he is commanding people to pray for him. Look at Romans 15, verse 30. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Do you see that? Can you imagine if in your group chat this afternoon, someone from your group said, I appeal to you, my sisters and brothers, by the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, in accordance with the Heavenly Father, to strive. Like, this is serious, right? Usually it's just like, y'all, this is going down. Please just pray, right? Which is beautiful. It's wonderful. But Paul is appealing to his church family, and immediately we get this sense of urgency, we get this sense of the importance of what he is asking for. Before we even know what Paul's specific prayer request is about, we're learning something about what we'll simply call the posture of prayer. And here it is. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is not passive. Paul doesn't ask his readers to some sort of sideline sentimentality. He's inviting them to enter into the struggle. This active nature of prayer is further demonstrated when he says, strive together with me. That, that phrase, strive together, is really a single compound word, two words that are sort of mashed together here in the Bible. It's the only place in the Bible it appears, and it means to join fervently or to contend along with. He's saying, get in the struggle with me. Prayer is not something you do while I go do the real work. Prayer is the real work that we all enter into together. It's active. It's communal. Now, modern people often suggest that prayer merely is passive engagement of what's happening in the world. In fact, it is criticized often when we post something like thoughts and prayers, right? You might as well just post, I don't want to get involved, or I just feel uncomfortable and want to make sure there's something on my timeline that says I know what's going on, right? Or as one comedian suggests that when we say thoughts and prayers, what we're really saying is don't forget about me today in the middle of all of these headlines. See, now while prayer should not be the only way that we get involved, in the things that are happening personally or socially, prayer is not an abdication of moral responsibility. 
That, that is a modern lie. That is not what the Scriptures teach about prayer. Paul is conveying to us that prayer is not passive. The Psalms are really a book about prayer. They're a collection of songs and prayers written by a number of people. And if we want to learn about prayer, we should certainly consider the words of Jesus and His explicit instruction that we looked at this summer in the Sermon on the Mount. But we should also read the Psalms. Throughout these 100 and 150 prayers, we witness believers crying out to God in an active and honest participation with God and His people. Sometimes you read a psalm and you wonder how it got past the editor because it just seems it's like too honest, right? Like this is not going to be good PR for God if this gets into print, right? If this makes it, we're all going to be in trouble. But what we also sense in this throughout all of this honesty, that that people are not living in distance through prayer. They're the people who are engaged. In fact, the reason that they are having to go to prayer in this way is because they are engaged and not distant from the things of life. They're not sympathetic without accountability. They're repeatedly asking God for protection, for comfort, for justice, for healing, for considering how they might get involved, live differently, and be further engaged in what God is doing in their world. This is not a sideline effort. Are you picking up what the Scriptures are throwing down? This is us being engaged with what God is doing. Israel's second king, perhaps you've heard the story of King David. He was a shepherd boy turned king after Saul, who was the first king of Israel. He wrote 73 of these 150 uh, psalms. He wrote many of them in order to be prayed or even sung in congregations. So he's writing them And and when he writes them, he's not just being personal or telling his own story. He's helping to shape the liturgy of God's collective body. That's why in the prescript of many of the Psalms, it says, usually in all capital letters, it says, to the choir master at the top. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm writing this for all of God's people to sing or to say out loud when they gather. And he's offering one of those in particular in Psalm chapter 51. David actually wrote Psalm 51 after he committed adultery and got caught. If you know this story, think about that. This the prayer cannot be passive. This is a man who is in the middle of guilt, battling shame and grief and brokenness. This is a prayer not of someone who is passively sorrowful, but actively in active contrition. He seeks forgiveness, protection, accountability, transformation, deliverance, healing. He needs help. And the prayer is not someone checking something off the list. Or simply going, I think this is what spiritual people do. This is someone battling to walk in the light. This is someone struggling to enter into the struggle. Hear what David says in Psalm 51, verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will deliver your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And remember, this isn't just about David. David is teaching God's people to pray. In the middle of his brokenness, he's teaching a broken people what it is to be communal, what it is to be in this together, what it is to lament and grieve and cry out to God together. It's an invitation. It's an invitation into the struggle. Their prayer of confession is meant to be a beginning, not an end. 
So we don't just say, I'm, I'm healed because I prayed about it, and now I'm moving on. Prayer is the pathway to walk through the struggle. Prayer is the way in which we seek deliverance from sin, and David even vows to speak and live differently, declaring righteousness and praise. He's offering a broken and contrite heart. In other words, he knows, I don't just have to show up to church the next week and everything's going to be okay. I, I need to lay down my life as a result of what I've experienced, the devastation that has shown up in my heart and in my community. That's striving. You see, prayer is not passive. David is entering in not just in this moment, but he is entering in for the rest of his life through this prayer. All of this being said, it might be ironic to hear, the power of prayer, though, is not in our striving. The power of prayer is not in our activity. Uh, Tim Keller explains in his book on prayer, which I commend to you, it's simply called prayer, so that, that helps. Um, he says that the power of our prayers lies not primarily in our effort and striving or in any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. This is why Paul incorporates, if you noticed in the passage that we read from Romans 15, he incorporates the full host of the Trinity in his prayer, or in his request for prayer, this is the posture of prayer. Though we pray urgently and though we pray together as God's people, our prayer is most informed by the one to whom we pray and by whom we pray. Are you with me? This is really good news because that means that when you're sitting around praying as a group or praying at the dinner table or praying by yourself, you don't have to make sure that you pray right and get all of the like Mad Libs words right. You go, I said everything exactly correct, therefore that will eat. He's good. He is righteous. He, and we submit our, post, our, our postures in submission to him. Notice what Paul says. Look again at verse 30. Our prayer is most informed by the one who is Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Prayer isn't passive, but also prayer is not even about us. See, the posture of prayer is an act of striving together, centered on the community of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, the Father hears our prayers. In Jesus' instruction on prayer, He directly addresses the Heavenly Father. If you remember Matthew 6, verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So when we pray, we're praying to our Heavenly Father. The Son then teaches us to pray, but He also is the one that we pray in His name. See, notice Paul says, by our Lord Jesus Christ, a unique phrasing for Paul. Jesus promises His disciples that in His name there is power. In John 14, whatever you ask, He says, in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, He says it again in the next verse, in my name, I will do it. Why do your prayers have power? Because they are prayed in the name. The name in Philippians chapter 2 that we're told is a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? There's power in the name. So we pray, when we pray, we pray in the name of our brother, in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, Paul highlights that the Spirit unites us in prayer. See, when Paul says, by the love of the Spirit, he is not in this case talking about the love that the Spirit has for us, though he does. He is talking about the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that believers have together, which is love from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We share in the love of the Spirit with one another. 
So when we strive in prayer together, the Spirit works among us and brings us together through love as the people of God. We're praying with our spiritual family. Have you ever experienced this? Like maybe there was just a little bit of tension in your group or in your family, and then you had to enter in and pray for them. And you're like, oh no, this is going to soften my heart. I don't want my heart to be soft towards them. I want to keep this wall up. There's something about praying for your sister and praying for your brother that reminds you who you are and who they are. And we no longer see them through whatever dysfunction or frustration or pain that we have. We see them, oh, that's my sister. That's my brother. Right? That's the love of the Spirit. The love of the Spirit begins to melt our hearts. This is our posture. Are you picking up on this, church? It's urgent, but it's also grounded in the Trinity. Of course, not every prayer is going to feel as urgent as what Paul is describing here, nor does every prayer need to hit every member of the Trinity, right? We have to be so careful, myself included. Goodness, I do this. I need to get called out on this all the time, like making sure that the prayer sounds really nice, right? Which really means I'm praying to the people in the room and not to my Heavenly Father. You ever do this? I just want to make sure everybody goes, wow, that that prayer, I needed footnotes to understand exactly what was going on there instead of just surrendering and submitting to the one who hears us. See, we're meant to nurture this posture regularly so that no matter what we're praying about, we're becoming more and more dependent and more and more aware of our familial identity and of our collective dependency on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, that's the posture. It's how we approach prayer. But what does Paul want his readers to pray about? We haven't even got to yet what is Paul asking for prayer about. What can we learn about prayer in general from his request? Look at verse 31, Romans chapter 15. Paul says that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul is requesting prayer for two things. First, deliverance from Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, that's where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. So he's asking for prayer, for deliverance, for protection from the Jews in Jerusalem. And secondly, that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem will accept the gift that he is bringing them. So these two requests beg a host of questions. Why is Paul worried about his safety? Right? Why? It's clear that he is worried about his physical safety. And why is Paul worried that fellow Christians will not receive money? Have you ever met a Christian that was unwilling to receive money? That begs a question. Not really sure what's going on there. Well, let's remember a couple of things. The Jewish world is still contending with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Many are still not sure how to organize their theology or their understanding of the story of God with the advent, the arrival of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be their Messiah. And even if they did accept him and become followers of Jesus, they have a ton of old bad habits that they're still working through, that they're still trying to unlearn. Prejudices about the Gentile world, non-Jewish people remain unchanged in their hearts and minds. So Paul was worried that Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't welcome him and instead would try to hurt him in order to hinder the gospel that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah. They were trying to prevent that from spreading So Paul was worried that Jewish Christians, too, in Jerusalem would think that the gift from Macedonia and Achaia was somehow tainted by godless Gentiles. So they wouldn't receive it because that would be condoning their way of life. And so he's asking for prayer. He's asking for physical protection. He's asking for spiritual transformation. And that's the content of his prayer. It's physical and it's spiritual. Luke was a physician 
There's this historian who followed Paul around in many of his journeys, and he recorded a lot of their experiences in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is Paul's second book. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Acts, which is, again, sort of this historic or biographical following of Paul as the gospel spreads in Asia Minor in the first century. And he records, actually, the scenes that are leading up to Paul's departure to Jerusalem. And no less than three times—this is wild, you guys— at every port in Paul's journey, people were saying, don't go to Jerusalem. This is a bad idea, right? And you know, like when Paul's writing Rome, he's like, here's my plans. This is what I'm going to do. Pray for me, but I'm going. And you're like, well, bet. I think he's pretty clear. The Holy Spirit's telling him to do that. But everywhere he goes, like, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Watch this. Meet me in Acts chapter 20. So if you're in Romans, turn to the left. Just a few books of the Bible. You go back through, uh, actually not a few, just one. Uh, Acts chapter 20 is right, uh, Acts is right before Romans. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Or you can just type in Acts 20, 22. Uh, First, we'll see that Paul is deeply aware of what is going to take place in Jerusalem, and he is pursuing or he's going forward anyway. Acts chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Okay, so he goes, I don't know what's going to happen, except everywhere I go, I get thrown into jail and it hurts, right? So I know I'm going to go to Jerusalem and probably, because this is how things go down for me, it's not going to go well. And so what? Pray for me pray for me. We keep following the story, Acts chapter 21, verse 4. Uh, If you move down the page or maybe you turn one, everyone around Paul knows that this is physically and spiritually risky as well. Acts 21, verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And so Paul, again, he's making his way to, uh, to Jerusalem, having written Romans. Now he's going to Ephesus and then on into Tyre and these other port cities along the Mediterranean Sea. And Christians, everywhere he goes, they're like, we've been praying about this. And the Spirit is telling us, this is not going to go well for you. Don't go. Please don't go. Please don't go. And Paul's like, all right, cool. I'm going to go to the next city. Look at verse 11, Acts chapter 21. They keep going and they get to Caesarea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and his hands. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is an incredible illustration. This man who's like greeting Paul in Caesarea, he's like, give me your belt and wrap up. This is going to go. This is how it's going to go for you. It's not going to be good. And so they said that we heard this, verse 12, and we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So right before this, there are three women in Caesarea who are prophesying over Paul so convincingly that Luke, Luke is writing this. So when he says we in Acts, he's saying me too. I'm saying this now to Paul. So the guy who's taking all the notes, he's like, hey, I'm looking back over my notes. Um, Everyone is saying don't go to Jerusalem. I am now convinced (laughs) that you should not go there. And so please (laughs) don't do this. He keeps going, Paul does, and he says that he's willing to be thrown in jail, even killed in Acts chapter 21. Again, we have many questions. Who is the Spirit actually talking to? Because Paul is saying, the Spirit told me. And then all these other people are saying, well, the Spirit told me. This seems like a very bad church meeting, right, where everybody is saying the Holy Spirit is backing their perspective. 
Um, maybe you've been in a church meeting like that. Uh, so who is the Spirit talking to? And are these people just afraid? Is Paul being bullish, right? Which we couldn't put it past him. I mean, we've seen plenty of places that Paul has not really listened to counsel very well. So, or is he just demonstrating great faith? What is actually going on? Is Paul listening or is he not? Well, unfortunately, we don't really know yet. What we do know is that the content of Paul's prayer, Paul's request, is for physical protection and spiritual transformation is well-founded. Everyone knows he needs prayer. Understand? So everyone, they, they may not agree on what if he's a good idea or if he should be doing this. In fact, many people agree he should not be. But the clarity with which we see at this point is that his fears are well-founded. No one thinks it's going to go well in Jerusalem, not even Paul. Now, this is the content of Paul's prayer. What is the content of your prayers? What's the content of my prayers? See, if nothing else, Paul is willing to step into a situation, if not a season, where urgent prayer and reliance upon the Trinity is necessary. It is necessary. Considering the content of his prayers forces us, I think, to consider our own. Are your prayers necessary? Are mine? Or are they convenient? Now, my desire is to neither shame you nor guilt you to do something crazy, right? To say, your prayers need to be crazy. You need to go do something and ignore everybody with whatever they think about it. That's spiritual manipulation. That's just going to lead to distrust, dysfunction, breakdown, it's and abuse. It's not okay. Rather, my aim is this, to interrogate the content of your prayers. We learn a lot about our lives when we consider the content of our prayers. When we consider, what is the thing that I keep bringing before the Lord? What is it I keep telling my group about that I need prayer for? What does that reveal about my life, about my hope, about my trust, about what I value, about my deepest affection and joy and gladness and faith? Our prayers reveal a lot about our lives. Because you see, perhaps one of the reasons that we are often passive in prayer is because we are passive in life. One of the reasons that prayer does not seem like it is actually an engagement in the real things that are going on, but seems sort of like a sideline habit, is because much of our life is lived that way too. What we pray about doesn't require boldness, doesn't require faith or urgency. It doesn't require the full community of the Holy Spirit, Father, or rather the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Why is that? Why is it that often our prayers are not necessary and urgent and needing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? I think that reason is revealed in the result of our prayer, where we'll go next. See, Paul concludes his request for prayer with his final hope and even a prayer for his Romans brothers and sisters. Look at Romans. If you're still in Acts, turn back to the right. Romans chapter 15, 32 and 33 so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And then he prays for them. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The reason Paul prays for spiritual transformation and physical protection is because he wants to make it to Rome. He wants to make it to Rome. He, he wants the, to finally visit his brothers and sisters there. And what does he say? And enjoy their company. I just want to be with you guys. I really long to be with you guys. And we looked at last week why it was so important for Paul to go to Jerusalem because he, want, he believed in this gift and the, the power of this gift so much. Um, but this is his ultimate prayer. He wants to make it to Rome. So does that happen? 
right? Well, let's, looking again at Acts, I think we get our answer because, again, Luke continues to tell Paul's story. And after an initial warm reception in Jerusalem, uh, particularly by the Apostle James and his community, things get really tense for Paul in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21 tells us that when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, what the, these Jews from Asia, as Luke describes them, says about Paul is strictly not true. It's not fair. It's not exactly doing justice to what Paul is doing in Jerusalem, but opponents rarely do one another the dignity of honesty, right? So we should not be surprised. They are stirring up the crowds with falsehood, accusing Paul of division and blasphemy, and they even start beating him with the intent to kill him. Now, Paul is given a chance to share his story in the middle of all of this. Someone presses pause. They go, hey, let's just hear him out. He shares his identity. Here's who I am. I'm actually a Jew like you. Here's the story of the gospel. Here's who Jesus is. Here's how he changed my life. But they're unpersuaded. He faces ridicule, multiple trials, threats of violence, and threats of death, and was even in prison. And in the middle of all of this, his Roman citizenship is discovered, and he demands to see Caesar. This is a crazy story. And there he goes. He goes to Rome as a prisoner. As a prisoner. Okay, so let's do some prayer assessment. You ever do prayer assessment and just kind of look back in your journal and go, that didn't go well. I didn't think that would happen. Wow, Lord, you're gracious here. Thank you for not saying yes to this prayer, right? That kind of uh, assessment. From one vantage point then, it seems like Paul's uh, answer was definitely no, right? His physical protection, spiritual transformation from which uh, he appealed to his readers and solicited the Trinity, both seemed to have been met with a dizzying no answer from God. It did not go well for him in Jerusalem. He gets to Rome, but he gets there in chains. He's still recovering physically from the abuse. He's still facing oppression, oppression and a legal battle with the Jewish community, not for social crime, but for preaching the gospel. It seems like all the warnings and all those people in those port cities were like, yo, we told you this was not going to go well for you. Not only so, but the result of all these prayers certainly do not seem to have led to a joyful arrival in Rome to enjoy fellowship and barbecue with the Roman brothers and sisters that he wanted, right? Seems like Paul should not have come. And yet, from another vantage point, he's still alive, right? And a clue in the book of Acts actually suggests that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem did accept the gift before the Jews from Asia caused a ruckus. What's more, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, still in jail, but not suffering, and surrounded by his spiritual family. Hear this. This is how the book of Acts ends. He lived there in prison for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So physically, Paul is still able to welcome all kinds of people to Rome, or rather from Rome in his jail cell for two years. Spiritually, Paul is proclaiming the gospel He's doing his job. He's embracing his calling to Roman Jews and Gentiles alike. What could bring 
the follower of Jesus, the great apostle of God, more joy and refreshment than seeing the gospel taught, believed, cherished, and growing around him. Perhaps every aspect of Paul's prayer request is met with a thrilling yes, but not necessarily in the way that any of us would have hoped for, desired, or could have seen coming. Herein lies, church, one of the primary reasons why we don't pray, or at the very least, we don't strive in prayer as Paul appeals. You see, sometimes the only result of prayer we're willing to accept is one where we are wrapped in comfort and our dreams are realized. Am I preaching to you yet? I don't want to pray like Paul because I don't want to end up like Paul. See, I know it's true for me. When I pray for God's will to be done, I don't want it to cost me too much. Just a little bit, just a little bit of cost so I can say, ah, that was hard. I didn't have coffee for a week. That was hard. That was really hard. When I pray for physical protection, I really mean I don't want to feel any pain, not that I just want to be alive on the other side of it. When I pray for spiritual transformation, I want it to be a minimal inconvenience to my career and my bank account. I want to become more like Jesus as long as I still have the right amount of money. Make sense? This is why we are passive in prayer. It's because we know, we instinctively know that bold prayers are costly. And I love stuff too much. I love things too much. I think this is the reason why the content of our prayers rarely requires the level of urgency and rarely requires the Father, Son, and Spirit. We're scared. I know I am. I'm scared that praying with faith like this will cost me comfort, luxury, influence, money, all things that I desire, perhaps more than the gospel, more than the Lord. I'm scared things won't end up the way that I want. I'm scared that they'll end up the way that God wants. And I'm scared, ultimately, what does that reveal? That I don't think God is about my good. See, the reason is always comes down to our, our belief in the Lord and who He is and what He is like. If I am unwilling to pray bold prayers because I think it will be costly to me, what I'm saying is God doesn't know what I need. God doesn't know what's good for me. I do. See, Paul's life and his prayer then is inviting us. He's inviting us to a life and even a prayer life that requires, needs faith in the gospel. So do yours, do mine. Do your prayers require the gospel? Do they need faith? Do they need Father, Son, and Spirit? You see, one of the things that Jesus, things about Jesus, rather, which is so contrary to our common moral formation, is his willingness to be inconvenienced and suffer for the sake, for the joy and refreshment of his spiritual family. You remember on the shore of his crucifixion, he is contending with his Father. I don't want this. This seems hard. I don't want to die. If there is any other way, can we do that? And then what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Father, give us that kind of faith. He took this posture all the way to the cross. And his work on the cross is not simply an example to us, church. It's also our power. See, the gospel helps us to overcome our fear and teaches us to pray with a new posture and with new content. 
When we behold the gospel, it changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we posture ourselves in life. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross, he puts our fears to shame. He puts death to death. In his death then, believers find hope right in the middle of our fear, right in the middle of our death. We realize that death cannot take what Jesus has secured. Therefore, you can strive in prayer. I can strive in prayer. We can strive together. We can pray with boldness and reject passivity and fear and embrace love, intimacy, and faith in God, knowing that not only does He know what is best for us, what is good for us, but that He protects us even if it looks like everything else has fallen apart because He's our Father, because Jesus is our brother, and because the Spirit of God ultimately holds us together by His grace. So may we be a church that prays with boldness, without fear, for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, yeah, left to ourselves, left to myself, I want to pray in such a way for myself and for others that is not costly. And yet, ultimately, that reveals my affection for this world and my distrust in you. So, Father, forgive me. Forgive us. That what you're calling us to is not a disregard for our well-being or for our good, but a true understanding of it. That what is best for us is to be centered in your will. What is best for us is to be submissive to your good news, your gospel truth. What makes us whole is to be like your son. And so, Father, would you give us that kind of courage? Would you give us that kind of faith? Would you give us that kind of community that strives together in prayer so that the good news of Jesus would go out to the far reaches of this world and that it would go deep within our hearts so we become the people you're calling us to be? We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.